I am Alon Ben Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is David Rabinovich, director of the Mental Health Clinic at Trombam Medical Center in Haifa, Israel. He has worked as a psychiatrist in charge of psychiatric outpatient services in both South Africa and Israel, and has invested in the development and teaching of professional skills and approaches in community mental health care. You can find his full bio on the page for this episode. So anyway, what I wanted to talk about today actually is the something that you and I have discussed uh, several times in the yes. past, and that is the psychological dimension of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And look at it from you know a number of perspectives, including history, <coughs> religion, ideology, the mutual delegitimization, de mm -hmm. uh, of course, the concern of a national identity, and what is going to take if to be able to reconcile these differences, if at all possible. Yes. So, so uh, you know, maybe we should begin you know with with the history. That is, as we have discussed before. The narrative, the historic narrative that the Israelis and the Palestinians have been using all along, obviously contradict one another uh, because they have developed such narrative that it suits their objective, their goal, their purpose, and been able to impart with that to their own respective publics. And now, I think nowadays, the majority of Israelis, perhaps the majority of the Palestinians, actually believe in that kind of narrative that it is certainly not accurate but been promoted in order to create a, a certain environment conducive to what the leadership would like to project so that that kind of narrative and then what is that historic narrative you know from your perspective how do you see that i mean i have my own views on it as well of course i i, I do feel that uh, a useful model to operate here is the idea of the Rashomon, uh, based on that uh, very famous movie, uh, Japanese movie, <clears throat> which has to do with essentially the subjectivity of perception. Because what is interesting is not that there are differing, uh, differing narratives, but those narratives are held with a passion and a certainty and a level of belief which often reaches the level of the sacred. And yet, uh, you know, uh, if we take just as an isolated uh, uh, example, uh, what might have happened in the 1948 war is that certain events, uh, this is clear, have been described differently by both sides. Well, that's, that's, that's exactly the and, point, and yeah. We, we're dealing here with the subjectivity of perception, first and foremost which have been transformed into almost sacred narratives, believed with a passion and a certainty, to the point whereby I, I recall reading in the past when uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis did meet around the table to deal with history, with their collective histories, it didn't really resolve as a collective history, even through the basis of dialogue. So th the starting point is very problematic. The starting point is passionately held, not just differing narratives, but passionately held narratives. Yeah, and a passionately held narrative <clears throat> is exactly what it is. 
but here what I see, you know, that is when you read the history, the way it's been projected or written by the Israelis from their perspective, and you see that from the Palestinian perspective, this is like reading history and accepting it at face value, the way it's been read, yes. the way it's been seen. And that obviously creates certain perception about one another. So how do you, in fact, mitigate that? That is, in my view, and I'm sure you agree with that, you would not be able to bridge the gap between the two sides. Obviously, history is not the only impediment. We'll be talking about other elements. But you cannot bridge the gap between the two sides unless you can create a narrative that it is more or less acceptable to both sides. Now let's talk about the real example here. The real example in terms of historical perspective, we can go back to 1917 from the time the Belfort Declaration was issued almost exactly 100 years ago, exactly. Uh, so from that time on, you know, the Palestinian resentment and narrative about Israel, what the Jews want to do and how they're going to go about it, has been written and being established and, and uh, promoted within the Palestinians as, as a body politic as well as the public itself. The 1948 and the Nakba, that is the catastrophe that the Palestinians uh, speak about, and that is, from their perspective, Israel was the, the culprit that actually uh, expelled the Palestinians from their own land and occupied. Whereas Israelis maintain, no, that what happened is that the Palestinians left on their own, they've been encouraged by the Arab state, the leadership of the Arab state to leave, come back to the spoils. So these are the two set of narratives that you have been juxtaposed to one another and been further, you know, actually the, the discussion about this been further deepened and, and, and both sides been trying over time to further prove this is the case. And obviously textbooks and other than, other than public narrative have been now ingrained that in the mind of most Israelis and Palestinians. You know, I, um, I, I, I'm going to permit myself at this point to uh, draw on the fact that uh, I also have a separate life experience as a doctor in the field of mental health. And I permit myself to say it reminds me very strongly of how a couple therapist has to deal with a couple for whom one has had an affair outside of the marriage. The strategy of treatment is to bring the two to a point whereby they're able to draw a line and cease being historical. Exactly. That is the key to it, you see, because I don't think, I, I, I notice that, uh, that certain uh, academics uh, recognizing uh, the, the complexity of the double narrative have attempted to propose bridging narratives. I don't think bridging narratives is going to work because the ideas are too sacred. No one's going to give up on them. But where it is possible is to shift the mindset from the past to the present and the future, but I have to qualify that by saying that will not happen through persuasion. It will happen because something has changed on both sides that there is a will to do so. And what has to be changed to make the will is the problem. The question here that you brought about, you know, to a couple where the husband 
committed adultery. Can be the wife too. Okay, or the wife for that matter. Now what happened here, the fact that adultery being committed, you cannot change. Correct. That is, to the extent that both the one or the other <coughs> admitted to that, yes. you cannot change. The question now, since this is a fact, can we in fact equate the history that's been manipulated of the going back again to the formation of the state of Israel in 1948, can you in fact treat that as a fact, as if one or the other committed that kind of adultery that you cannot mitigate? You have to accept it, and you have to move on by accepting it. In my view, neither the Israelis or the Palestinians, at least not at this juncture, are willing to abandon that old narrative where they're going to be proven because neither side want to admit that they were wrong in their, and how they see history evolve uh, from that point on. So that is, that is one of the problems. Of course, we, that doesn't suggest that it cannot be resolved. What I'm saying this is unlike a, a fact that cannot be disputed, narrative can, may well be, can be uh, adjusted or restated in order to reach any kind of process of reconciliation. Well, let's just identify for a moment, uh, not so much uh, what is required for change, but where, wherein lies the resistance to, to change. And I think an important factor in the resistance to change is that the political elites on both sides are invested in the stability of the narrative. Yes. They don't want the narrative to change for many reasons. Amongst other things is that those narratives are a source of power, political power. If the narratives change, political power is threatened. And I think that uh, that itself is a highly stabilizing factor. So therefore, I have to draw on something which I think came from you, Alon, in previous discussions. And that is... Who is going to change the motivation for a rapprochement? It will not come from the political elites at this time. I don't think the political elites want it, uh, and it's in their best interest to maintain it. I think I remember in our previous discussions how you emphasized the importance of bottom-up. In other words, what about the populations? Exactly. After, all, yeah. after all, the political elites are listening to their electorates in the democratic setting or in the social setting of the Palestinians. And that's, I think, a very important point. That is the fear of change that could compromise the position of the political elite and the position that have been taken all along has to change. And since themselves, they will not voluntarily change it. Two or three things will have to happen. A, a recognition that unless they change their narrative, things will get will continue to be stuck and there'll be no progress, right? But that change, since they will not, in my view, they will not do so voluntarily. Look at what's happening between Israel and the Palestinians going back decades now. Absolutely. Voluntarily, they did not change, which means <clears throat> what we mentioned, talked about before, is that the bottom-up approach still critical, in my view, to reconcile the historic narrative. Because on their own, they will not do that. That is, the political elite will not do that on their own. Unless they are faced with potentially catastrophic development. That is, they, 
they wanted to prevent a catastrophic development, they may decide, well, it's better to change our approach rather than face with that catastrophe. And I don't think that either the Israelis or the Palestinians today see the potential development of such catastrophe, albeit it may very well be in the open. Now, well, you see, uh, we have to, at this point, perhaps mobilize additional concepts. Because what you're referring to as the potential catastrophe generated, or shall we say, predicted by uh, the current configuration, you and I see it, but the political elites do not. Or if they do, they have an interest in excluding it from the public narrative because yeah. it affects their power base. I would like to add to that, I think that there is an additional reason and that the political elites on both sides are infused with intense ideological and religious conviction. An ideological and religious conviction has, amongst other things, uh, one of its functions is that it leads people to cherry-pick data as they see right. I mean, the uh, right wing accuses the, the left wing of this as well. Everyone accuses everyone of this. Yeah, yeah, but I okay. think it's so clear that if the holiness of the land for the Israeli uh, right wing political elite, if the holiness of the land is, is, a, is a powerful belief system, then they will have blind spots for everything else that interferes with that perception. And exactly the same on the other side. Exactly. Yeah, there's, there's no question. You cannot single out the historic narrative and say this is the only problem. That is, this has also always been reinforced by what you just said. That is, there is religious ideological element that reinforces the the the, the, pub, the narrative that they've been using all along. And so it's not. I think it is naturally we can move to this how religion, in fact, further augmenting, strengthening. The, the, the psychological impediment between the two sides. So we have the public narrative on one hand, and now they have, they have to add to it the layer of religion. How religion actually is making that, uh, that impediment even much, much worse. And that is the, the, the Israelis, the, uh, the Jews, and the Palestinian claim. From a religious perspective, they, they have a claim to the same land. And this is, I think, it's even more difficult to reconcile because it's based on a set of beliefs. So the question here, I mean, whereas I think, uh, like I said before, <laughs> Soviet narrative can be, you can write, re rewrite some part of the history if you're willing to admit that you have been mislead, misled or been, been misleading. Uh, you can write, you can change your ideology to suit you, to suit the time, We've seen ideologies, you know, communism, fascism, uh, all kind of ism that died uh, because they were not be able, they, were, they, had, they failed to be able to get the kind of support, steady, sustainable um, support, whether from the public or otherwise. So they disappeared. There was no support for it. Whereas with religion, you don't have to concern yourself to prove anything. So here, here, in my view, that is, I'm not suggesting that you cannot reconcile the religious differences between the two sides, but that's a major, major element that's preventing both sides from making the kind of compromise that's going to be necessary 
The question is, what sort of compromise can you advance well, from a religious perspective? Well, first of all, I, I have to make the picture worse. <laughs> yeah. And that is that on the Israeli side, an important factor in my view is that right from the outset of the, of the establishment of the state, religion was not separated from the state. And from the Palestinian side, uh, what I understand, my best understanding of, of Islam is that it is inherently a political religion in that uh, there is no clear distinction, as I understand it, between Islamic practice and government. The, 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 the two somehow blend in a way that I don't fully understand. Now, here we come back to this remarkable thing that I of, you know, notice, we all notice it from time to time, and this remarkable mirror imaging that takes place between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Both societies have an infusion of intense religious belief right up to the level of the political elites and the power structure, which means that we begin with a, a greater difficulty, and that is yeah. uh, the <coughs> fact that uh, religious uh, sectors have political power and, and have the power yeah. to to implement their own policies and in this way influence government policy on both sides. Exactly, exactly, because when you use religion to to augment, to support your political position, your political ideology for that matter, it's, it's extremely difficult to argue against it. That's the whole point. So in Israel and the Palestinian, religion was from, from day one part and parcel of the uh, of their ideology and it, and how that was translated mm -hmm. to political position. So that is Jews claim to all of the land, the ancient land, the land of Israel is there. That has not changed. Mm -hmm. Current leadership continue to, to repeat that time and again. The Palestinian claim to Jerusalem is Jerusalem, the, the Temple Mount has not changed. That is something that is, and then both sides have assumed actually mesh that into their political position, yes. which is making things extraordinarily difficult again. Yes. I, I, I think uh, it's uh, Im important to add that similar to the discussion on narratives, implicit in this discussion is that whatever is being decided upon at a political level, the eyes are cast backward to history. It is the word of Abram and Isaac. It is the ancient prophets in Islam who are speaking all the time. In other words, when we're talking about this, there are other people in the room, metaphorically speaking. They are the, the forefathers and the prophets, and they're there in the room playing a role in decision-making at one level or another. Now, I, I think all this simply adds to the fact that this adds to the complexity and that it makes it, at face value, impossible to talk about reconciliation. But where I think that the issues still may lie, they, the sort of only uh, hope in inverted commas that we may want to talk about over here, is that in both societies there are strong uh, secular dimensions, secular elements of the uh, public, who perhaps we might say that they are too silent. We do not hear from them enough. No, I, I just want to add that no, I also no. see this in a way as linking to the old debate between modernity and 
the historical and religious past. There's an enormous tension there that I think is also infused in this debate as well. And to what extent can modernity win out? Well, modernity, that is to say the secular public uh, or the um, moderate religious public, have uh, an enormous task over here because they perceive the existing power structure infused with religion as, as monolithic and extremely, extremely powerful. Too powerful to bother. Exactly. No, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that is exactly the situation today. You know, um, and this argument has been very effective and being used by both sides extremely, very, very effectively. And that's another thing, add another layer to the difficulty of, of commencing a, a real process <coughs> of reconciliation. I think one of the reasons um, they, they, they are trying to avoid such a process, both Israelis and Palestinians, because they, want, they know that they have to obviously compromise on that religious precept itself, albeit not, not changing their set of belief, but find a formula whereby can, they can still believe in what they believe, but leave some kind of room for compromise. I mean, otherwise, there will be no future, for example, what the future of Jerusalem. How are you going to solve that aspect? So, which means, whereas you have that set of belief, both sides have it. If we assume that this cannot ever be reconciled, then there's nothing to talk about. So, we have, therefore, to find a formula. That is the process of reconciliation. The purpose of it is to look for a formula where you can, in fact, reconcile even a set of belief that usually is taken for, for, for you know, at face value for granted that you cannot modify. Well, I certainly agree with that. But I'd like to put forward uh, not, I think it would be uh, most arrogant to even suggest that there's a solution uh, derived from uh, political psychology, but. I do think that there's some questions to ask over here that may be relevant to finding the way forward. The first question is, what would it take to bring, first of all, the people, we're talking grassroots, we're talking bottom up, what would it take to bring the people predominantly into a here and now type mode rather than an essentially historical mode? Because if people... Uh, who influence their governments, not necessarily in an immediate sense, but it comes about, if there is a change at the level of the electorates, at the change of the level of the people, and uh, we, we, we're coming back to the first point in a certain way, yeah, yeah. and really the question is, the moment such a thing could be brought about, that the time frame, the time perception alters from the past to the present and the future, only then can one perhaps give religion its honored place and an honored place for the prophets, but refocus on the here and now, on the pragmatics, and to bring about further change at the level of the elites. This is very, very uh, utopian, what I'm saying. But I actually think that there is no other way. Given the circumstance at the moment, yeah. I actually think there's no other way. I mean, you know, but you, you need to look at the... From a religious perspective, the Israeli um, the makeup, the, the population-wise, uh, in Israel, uh, better than half of the population is they are Jews, but they might it's called secular Jews, yes. uh, and so they are not they don't they don't bother actually in even uh, 
dealing in any direct effective way with the religious implication of the conflict. For them, they see question of territory, who can have what, uh, and how to divide the territory, what sort of political system. They are not as concerned because they are really, they don't see it. They are not involved in, the, the perception of the conflict does not have strong religious component. Whereas in the, among the Palestinian religion, as we, if you said with correctly so, religion is part and parcel of the political process. Yes. From bottom up, all the way, yes. uh, top to bottom, bottom up. Yes. And that is significant difference there. That is one of the reasons I feel very strongly there is under no circumstances the Palestinian will accept any solution that will not grant them um, capital in East Jerusalem. Because for them, for them, that is something that you cannot compromise, you cannot mitigate. Whereas the Israelis, the secular, as we have seen during the negotiation with, uh, between Albert and Abbas, there was basically an agreement on the future of Jerusalem. There was an agreement, and which granted the Palestinian a, a capital in East Jerusalem. So the Israelis can be more flexible from a religious perspective, the Palestinian will not be. Uh, you see, if you're saying, you, you see, uh, over here we, we, we're touching a little bit on the zero-sum issue, because obviously no side can hope to have Jerusalem exclusively for themselves. The issue here is the division of Jerusalem. That's how I understand it. What I want to say on that, or, or sorry, I, I think that's a bit of a, a dangerous statement to make. Not so much the division of Jerusalem, but the sharing of Jerusalem. I think that's better to say that. Now, the thing is this. Um, I've noticed, I mean, I've read that an enormous amount of effort has been poured into building proposals of a highly sophisticated and skilled nature which could lead to the successful sharing of Jerusalem. The problem being that these proposals are essentially rational, whereas the religious component is not. Yeah, but not only rational, I think it's also practical. I've been, I've been saying all along, given the reality now of Jerusalem, how far the Israelis have gone in East Jerusalem, how many settlements they built there, the number of Israelis living in East Jerusalem. You have created a nice set of conditions that it's impossible to reverse. From any perspective, you okay. cannot re reverse. Which means, in a way, that makes the solution to Jerusalem easier, or, depending on how you see it, much more difficult. For, from the Palestinian perspective, they continue to demand, for example, that the Israelis should be getting out of East Jerusalem. There will be no solution. Which means, if you accept now the reality, and he's talking about how do you share the city. You share the city is based on the, what exists today. That is, there is no way you can introduce major change to the current status quo and be able to agree upon it. So the status quo will have to be accepted more or less the way it is, which means what is Jewish, what is Israeli is an Israeli, what is a Palestinian is a Palestinian. And they both basically can have it, the cake and eat it at the same time. You, you, well, I've been saying this all along, you institutionalize what's on the ground. And so this, the Palestinians can still have their, their Jerusalem, you know, East Jerusalem. Israel can still have its West Jerusalem, that's where you're sharing the city. But everything else basically remains the same. There's no border, there's no, there are no fences. 
the city will remain precisely the way it is united. And this is, in my view, one way you can mitigate one of the religious dimensions of the conflict, one aspect of the, of the and that's how I see it. Well, you know, that is, of course, a very creative approach because, as you correctly say, I'll put it in slightly different terms, it permits, it permits ongoing perceptions which are not being, which are not under assault. Yeah. Uh, an Israeli can say, the Israelis can say, it is all ours, the Palestinians yeah. can say it is all ours, yes, yeah. and, and, and that's, that's very important. Um, but I, I just, you know, have to add to that, you know, that it's again that there is an intense religious involvement over here, which is monistic in its thinking, and will not always permit creative solutions. This is, this, is, this is true. I mean, there's a militancy here that is very problematic yeah. arising out of a passionately held belief. And, you know, I think that the, the issue of uh, faith versus reason is, uh, is philosophically very complex. Uh, this is a true. It's, it's, it's obviously it's very, very, very complex. And, you know, many philosophers try to tackle this issue. And once they reduce um, any political concept or religious concept into into a reason, mm. then it is no longer holy. It's no longer religious for Indeed. that matter. So basically, you're reducing to the human level, and that's what both sides would like yes. want to avoid at all costs. That is why I think to suggest that they can change their mind. The only thing is, if I were to negotiate now with the Palestinian about on the religious perspective, I'll say to them, look. You can go back to your forefathers. You admit Abraham, Jacob, Isaac were the prophets of both Israel, Jews and Muslim alike. Well, uh, maybe God dictated, wanted that you, the Jews and the Arabs, live in, same, in the same land because if otherwise, if God wanted otherwise, he would have not created this problem in the first place. So if you are a believer, you cannot pick and choose what you believe in. You understand what I'm saying? Well, I think what I'm seeing in what you're saying are the seeds of a bridging narrative, at least at the religious level. At the religious level. Yes. That's exactly the point. Yes. Because you, can't, you cannot change the belief, but you can change the narrative about it. Yes. To create a, a common ground yes. over which both sides can agree. Yes. In fact, you're saying that those who, who can invest intellectually, politically, and theoretically in this area should do more because there are grounds for a bridging of the religious narrative. Yeah. Strangely enough, given the fact that the religious narratives on both sides are so rigid and entrenched. That's right. It's, it's a paradox. Yeah. And, but, you know, but there is a resolution to this particular paradox. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes. And I think it's there. I think you're and right. And unfortunately, mm. it has not been fully explored. Oh. And that is part of what I, you know, you and I talk about process of reconciliation. Yes, indeed. That is, you're going to have to have that kind of dialogue <clears throat> about this particular issue how you mm. and how you're going to... Because, you know, notwithstanding who still believe in two-state solution, they're still going to have to face this. Yes. How do you resolve this issue? Because it's there, it's not going to disappear. Indeed. So, so we, you know, I just want to move to the, the, the ideological conflict between the two sides. And here, of course, you have the Zionist, specifically revisionist Zionism, took over for all intent and purposes, at least in this current situation in Israel. And the idea here that uh, the Jews have the right to create their own state in that particular part, you know, part of the world, 
and uh, they're invoking both historic religious to to prove to show to demonstrate to insist on the fact that this is our land and it's going to be all of it you know not part of it that's what the ideology that's being held being held today with the with the wet with the right wing of Absolutely. the israeli party now again here you have a question how do you compare that how do you reconcile that with the ideology that Hamas and the Palestinian Authority believe in or try to promote uh, because they have a different set of, and I'm talking not religion now, I'm not talking about history, but ideology. Ideologically speaking, Hamas want to get rid of Israel, want to destroy Israel. That's, that's the ideology. That's their political platform. Yes. The well, Palestinian, well, take it from there. Well, you see, first of all, I, I, I actually uh, think that um, at heart, the Zionist ideology sprung from survival. I mean, it, its roots lie in survival. Exactly. You know, the, the, uh, the, the, the older discourses, the historical discourses of the Jew in Europe, uh, debating between assimilation and religion, and the third option of Zionism, all this had to do with survival. What is the best way to survive in, in a given society? And I, I think that the survivalist instinct continues to be hidden within the Zionist ideology. It's always there in one form or another. But uh, where I think uh, the greatest importance uh, about this, well, let me step aside to one side for a moment and just say that I think that in certain respects, ideology, which is always present in politics, I mean, it's no matter which politics, no matter where, some, it, really the, the real issue is the intensity of the conviction. And some, some ideologies are held with the conviction that people are willing to die for them, and blood is spilt over ideology. So let's not trivialize it. It's, uh, it's an enormous, no, 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 enormous it's a, it's powerful It's a very powerful, thing. and you put yes. it very well. That is the, the ideology here. It is driven by the Jews' fear or concern over survival itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is exactly the case. Which means, that is, this is where the whole issue of national security comes to play in yes. Israel. Yes. That is, they attach border to national security, uh, their uh, settlement is national security, their current posture, political position is national security. And that is, whether it's genuine, even though it may not be genuine, that is, does Israel really have that much concern about national security when, when it enjoys such far greater power, supreme power over the Palestinians? That, that brings us to a ping-pong, you see, between, on the one hand, existential anxiety of an immediately operating kind, on the one hand, and the other one is also survival, which are really two sides of the same coin. Where I think that the, the uh, Zionist ideology, for example, plays a very important role, is that when I think about in the earlier years of the state, and even now, that again the Zionist, ide the Zionist ideology, the Palestinian ideology, always have one thing in common, and that is the suppression of data, or suppression of the awareness of data, that doesn't fit the ideology. Oh yes, and, yeah, and, yeah. and And so in that sense, we are left again with this issue that, uh, I mean, the classical story when uh, more contemporary uh, uh, historians began to look at documentation and found data which challenged the ideological 
perceptions of Zionism, Zionism reacted to that. It was very hard for them to accept that. In fact, uh, some would have preferred it not to be, the archive should have remained closed. Well, now, yeah, yeah. What is my point over here? Again, we're coming back to this issue that ideology feeds many things. It feeds the stuckness or the intransigence of the conflict because ideology on the Zionist side has to do with survival on the one hand. But I have to add, that Zionism also includes a kind of a revanchist approach because the land that they didn't get from the settlements in 1948 is still regarded as theirs they wanted back. It's true that, it, well, you could argue whether it's revanchist in the sense the land was taken away and they wanted back. Certainly the Hamas uh, ideology and to a, lot of, to a certain extent the extremist uh, Palestinian ideologies are clearly revanchist and they want their land back. So what we're setting is not only the distance between the two, but conflict. Ideology, I think, feeds conflict much more than religion, although religion plays its There's no, question. No, no small role in this as well. There's no question. I mean, you go back to the, the Zionist ideology from the very beginning, the whole motive behind the creation of the State of Israel, and that is after years, centuries of, of persecution, expulsion, death, and all of that, mm. The, the instinct for survival. That's it. A time has come for us to have a state of their own yeah. in order to prevent these type of things from ever happening back to the Jews. Yeah. But the problem with that, which has happened now in modern Israel, not, notwithstanding Israel's military prowess and ability to deal with enemy, its enemies in a very effective way and has less reason to be concerned about survival itself per se. But that also, however, the, the fashion policies to, uh, as such, to support their concern over survival. I think this is one of the reasons you see this, the, what the government is doing today is taking action in the name of national security. You see the word national security invoked every single time. All the time. The Israelis uh, take this action or that action. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, th this will, will bring us to the, the other point that I wanted to to raise with this, that the mutual de, uh, dehumanization or victimization. Uh, and, and, and that's all connected to the previous point in many, yes. in many ways. That is, to justify what you are doing, you have to deny the right, the existence, or for that matter, to delegitimize the other side in order to make your point, in order to, to solidify your position. And I think both sides have been engaged in that systematically going from 1948 or even before that. Well, you see, I think this brings us right into the middle of an issue of perception, and that is the zero-sum perception. I mean, I, I'm stressing the word perception because I think it is wrong to see it in, in any other terms. Uh, the perception that if one side wins, the other loses is the recipe for ongoing conflict. And I notice... For example, this is very overt in the Israeli public uh, political discourse. I have clearly heard Netanyahu saying that uh, you know that there there is no uh, two points of view. There is only one, and that is the Zionist narrative. That is the only correct narrative. There is no other. In other words, the zero sum perception also is one which the political elite needs on both sides because that maintains the uh, power. Now, the, the thing is this also, you know, the zero-sum 
perception uh, has its roots also in the double narrative. But I have to add an extra issue which we meant, which we talked about previously in a different in the different uh, podcast, is the question of uh, what has been referred to by a scholar as group narcissism, and that is the in-group versus the out-group. The point is that the in-group, in-group psychology in the political setting has, amongst other things, the devaluation and the delegitimization of the other side to the point whereby they are no longer seen as human and can be killed or massacred. Exactly, exactly. And both sides hold yeah, to this. Yeah. Both sides hold to this, and in many ways they are executing that Indeed. approach day in and day out. Yes. I mean, that is what, that from the Israeli perspective, justify the annexation on more territories, mm. uh, control the Palestinian in, in ways that can be at times very ruthless. It is all justified, and the Palestinian too see it that way. And, you know, terrorizing the Jews, terrorizing the Israelis, it's, it's a very legitimate because that is the only way they can they can actually balance what they are experiencing themselves. Yes. You see? And and so this mutual delegitimization serves their ideological Absolutely. position and it serves their also religious uh, precepts as well. You know? I mean, I have to add to that. It, it, it's not just that it serves the purpose of polarization. It also provides a legitimization for lethal action. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see, I, I, I think it's become part of the public narrative that many people have felt that, you know, we, we see killing taking place every day in the, in the, yeah. in the IPC, Israel-Palestine conflict, killing is taking place every day, one way or another. And I see that as a direct consequence of this particular structure that we're talking about now, this exactly. pattern that we're yeah. talking about. So... Uh, it's very, very malignant. It's highly malignant. <laughs> and what, that, what the politicians are doing on both sides are making just things uh, you know, worse. Uh, because this is exactly... As a matter of fact, I think there is a deliberate pursuance of this particular aspect to the conflict. To keep it, to keep it the way it is. I think this is where comes the idea from the Israeli, uh, the Netanyahu government is actually believed. That it can manage the conflict almost indefinitely. That's right. Yes. That's, That's where it came from. Yes. That is, it continued to victimize the Palestinians, mm-hmm. continued to portray them as illegitimate. Mm-hmm. Illegitimate. They are people, but they are not a nation, mm-hmm. as as uh, Netanyahu's father keep, kept was, kept say, saying. And therefore, they are not. They cannot have a state because they are just people happen to be living there. Yes. They are not. In, they don't constitute a nation, and that is. That's that's the the what what's been you know constantly been said and repeated time and again, and I think um, obviously uh, there's a significant um, number of Israelis who bought into this argument. Yes, indeed. And you know, I'm reminded in this context of the earlier slogans of Zionism at the time of the establishment of the state, and the classical one which. F- fits right here in this in this discourse is a people without a land for a land without people yeah which which i think fits this issue of delegitimization dehumanization and essentially we see this even in political terms 
where both sides are saying all the time, make the other side disappear. Yeah, and there's wishful thinking that over Possibly. time, one thing or the is gonna, mm. something is going to give. And I mean, both sides. I, I really think as long as they continue to believe, either side, both sides believe, they can, in fact, improve their position over time. Even though on the surface, the Palestinians maybe may, are, seem like they're losing, they don't see it that way. They feel that their consistency, their tenacity, their resistance, violent and otherwise, will eventually prevail. Whereas the Israelis are doing everything possible in order to create a new facts on the ground, you know, to make their, their case to gain over time. They want to keep gaining over time. Yes. And the both sides, as long as they, can, they feel they can continue to gain, they are not going to be willing, they are not willing to make the kind of compromise necessary in order to reach an agreement. Well, I, I have to add, you see, that it's been pointed out by many clever souls, many clever scholars, that power is aphrodisiac. And keeping power uh, supersedes sometimes the interests of the state. Yeah. I mean, here what we're saying is, I see all, we all see all the time that the public political discourse in Israel and in Palestinian society contains these themes that we've been discussing all the time. Right. Because... They are these themes are constitute the theory uh, upon which the political elites build political power. Right, right. So, we, if we want to talk about stuckness the in, and intransigence of the IPC, I think all these factors come together around that. I'm afraid, somewhat cynical point of view, but I think it is correct. That's right. Now, that, I would just want to add the other element that uh, we we talked about before, and that is uh, national identity. I think uh, I think both Israelis and the Palestinians still have their their national identity is still in its infancy. And one of the reasons, at least one, if not more than that, the continuing the resistance to change the status quo is because there is the fight about defining what is my national identity, who am I? That is, neither the Israelis nor the Palestinians have been able to establish that identity and understand it like, say, there is an American national identity, there is a French national identity, but what is the Israeli national identity? By definition. Yes. And it's still being formed. The same thing is with the Palestinians, still being formed. And the reason why they resist change is because they have not reached a point where they have formed clear identity, who they are, what they are, what they want. And as long as that identity still is in infancy, you're going to see greater resistance. Do you, do you agree I, with that? Not only do I agree with that, but I, I want to just add a bit of uh, 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 psychology substance to it. And yeah. that is this. I mean, I think as a truism, as a sort of a guiding point, you could say that the less mature the political identity, the greater it is vulnerable, or perceived to be vulnerable. It's perceived, And yeah, requires and defenses against yeah. things that may interfere with uh, the, the, the growth of that identity. I mean, Frenchmen, uh, French identity, Dutch identity, American identity, British identity, are taken for granted in much the same way that if, if the clock says 10 o'clock in the morning, it's morning, no one questions it. 
it's it's a, it's given for granted but in uh, certainly i think this is very a very important point that identities are in fact vulnerable in the middle east Still uh, israel palestine yeah. Yeah. the palestinian identity although the palestinians I, i know that there's discussion about this but you know the the consolidation of a of a more clear political identity of the palestinians is relatively recent in political terms in israel as well the political identity of the jews does not go back to four five six thousand years it it, it go because then was a different identity it was the identity of a people and identity of a religion no, no, but as a political now the point being I, i'm just giving substance to what oh, no, you're no, saying no no yeah you're right you're absolutely right yeah. i would even take a metaphor and say that political identity in israel and the palestinian political identity are in a manner of speaking still in the adolescence yes adolescence yeah. Yeah. are extremely resistant to having someone impose an identity on them and that doesn't go back like you said centuries goes back really only less than 100 years absolutely and that's 100 years in the scheme of things are not in not long enough time to establish yeah. that kind of identity that they can settle on it and understand it and eventually becoming mutually recognized by one another we are not there yet i i think we may i would like to also add a, a second component to this discourse and that is what constitutes a healthy identity and you know i think that uh, uh i would probably best leave it to political scientists and philosophers to answer that kind of question but i do think that a political identity is less than healthy if it is constantly dealing with death destruction and blood and constantly dealing with aggression and constantly dealing with conflict uh, yes. this cannot be a healthy yeah. identity no, and the real question is what would constitute a healthy identity here well i have no idea but i do think that the building blocks of such a healthy identity would come about with a reduction yeah of the conflict it is exactly but what has happened here as long as the both sides have certainly claims you see their national identity now is hang on what is going to be the ultimate ultimate solution so mm. to speak mm. that is, as long as israel has still have certain claims and the, the palestinian have certain claims there is a direct link between those continuing claims that has not been have not been satisfied and reaching to the where they realize that is they equate national identity with a state that it is real not challenged mm. in a, a exist and as long as even among the israelis there is a state but it's still in flux yes and the palestinians have no state so that national identity cannot be formed unless it is also defined by geographic area and I, I, you know I, you know what i'm saying there's no clear borders there's no clear borders and therefore you cannot identify as a nation yes, yes. As, as such and even though israel has israel doesn't have also clear borders as yet not yet and until they get to a point where there's an agreement then you can say that they're coming more closer closer to defining what is their national identity because i think it's a direct link to the land itself mm-hmm. well you see i i also want to at least keep into focus one step ahead and that is not only what is the identity but to what extent can each side feel that their identity is healthy 
that they have trust in it, that they have faith in that identity, that they, they, are, that they feel uh, positive about that identity. They are proud to fly the flag, not because of militancy or survival or humiliation, but for other reasons. And I think that we are, you know, it's not there yet. In my no, opinion. it's not there. Let's let's finally, you know, uh, you <laughs> and I, I think agree that mm. in the final analysis, all of these issues, these are tenements, psychological history, psychology. I mean, religion, idea, ideology, the sense of delegitimization, etc. That is, if we believe that in sooner or later, some kind of solution need to be found. We spoke about the need, the need for a process of reconciliation. Yes. The question that I, I'm thinking now about, you know, given the, the most recent development, both in the region and elsewhere, is the process of reconciliation still viable? Does it have to be preceded by some other development first? Mm -hmm. Or who is going to bring about this kind of process of reconciliation? That is people to people. That's, so if the government are not willing to reconcile, then the reconciliation will have to start from the bottom up. That is between the Israelis and the Palestinians themselves. And yes, there are elements both among the Israeli society as well as the Palestinians who are thinking in those terms. But I don't know if they have gone far enough. And this is what you and I have been trying to promote all along. That is, we yeah. need that kind of process. And we need to create it so that Israelis and Palestinians begin to look at one another from a different lenses. That yes. not all Israelis are killers, soldiers with ready to shoot, and not all Palestinians are terrorists ready to kill. Absolutely. And for that, you're going to need also the government to support that kind of process of reconciliation. And why I see now greater difficulties is because the government themselves, either Israel and the Palestinian Authority, certainly not Hamas, are willing to invest in this process. You know, I have to quote something that you wrote uh, some time ago. I forget exactly the uh, the article, but you stated that as long as Netanyahu and Abu Mazen uh, hold the leaderships of their respective peoples, uh, there will be no progress in this. In this, I event. absolutely believe. And that. I, I think uh, I think that it fits with the content of this discourse that we yeah. had, because both of them are leading. But although we have to add with regard to the Palestinians, also the question of Hamas, which is that much more malignant to any hope of reconciliation. Right. But both sides have got political elites that they are leading that are, for all the reasons we've discussed, yeah, unwilling are, 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 are not going to do it. Yeah, they are either unwilling and able to make the kind of concession necessary and to be before making this concession, they have to prepare the public. Hence, this, we go back to the process of reconciliation. They are not willing to take these kind of steps in order to lead both people to begin to want to see one another. So as long as Netanyahu, I think, as I repeat that, and, uh, and Abu Mazen and Mahmoud Abbas are in power, I don't think we're going to see this kind of process any time soon. Certainly so, not reconciliation. Yeah, no. We're going to have to. We have to see a change of government, and two governments that are look begin to look at the entire conflict from a different perspective, and ask a simple question, which I have saying it ad nauseum: coexistence is inevitable. They have to coexist. They can kill each other for another hundred years, or they can make peace with one another, but they are stuck with one another. 
And that this is the choice that they, can, they, they would have to make. Well, you see, I, I think that we have to go back to this question. That I think that hope, if any, lies in segments of both societies that are far too silent. And that is the rational, uh, secular, modern segments of society and the religious moderates of those societies yeah. who, are, uh, who are there. They are too silent. I think on the Israeli side, certainly, they are silent for two reasons. One is that the, uh, in terms of social class, those that are more educated and have better income are enjoying the fruits of a buoyant economy, which is very stabilizing both in the good and the bad sense. And those that are uh, not uh, at the lower uh, echelons of uh, the social class uh, spectrum are much more easily swayed by existential anxiety as mobilized by the political elites and keep them in power. On the, on the Palestinian side, I'm less sure, although I do believe that a hard scrabble life and uh, a middle class that is too small, actually, is also in a sense stable. People, people are too busy getting bread to worry about the big picture. So there's a silence. That's the point. Yeah, my, 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 yeah, I agree with you, but my feeling is that this type of silence or complacency, complacency. it is not uh, enduring. It cannot endure forever. Something will have to give it. So here's the question. What, what will wake them up? That's my go back, and I'm sorry to say, to end this discussion, go back to what I've said before. Something will have to shake both sides. And unfortunately, the only thing that's going to shake them, given that there is lack of leadership, visionary, courageous leadership, what's going to happen is probably major, major, massive, violent, uh, confrontation, conflagration that's going to shake up this, the, the, the status quo and the people will be awakened to search for a better solution. Maybe I'll say with a smile, uh, maybe if they listen to this podcast, <laughs> it may do something for them too. <laughs> thank you so much, David. It's been a great pleasure and very much enjoyed it. So thank you, Alon. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.